Welcome to the Library of Mistakes, changing the world one mistake at a time. I'm Russell Napier, the keeper of the library, a beautifully designed building in Edinburgh, housing more than 4,000 books about the mistakes that the world keeps repeating, particularly in finance and business. Visit libraryofmistakes.com to find out more. And for those keen to guard against mistakes, we also run a course called A Practical History of Financial Markets, available both in person in London and Edinburgh or online for wherever you are in the world. To find out more about the course, please see the link in the podcast show notes. Well, welcome to the Library Mistakes podcast. I'm delighted this time to have my friend Steve Clapham here to discuss his book, The Smart Money Method, How to Pick Stocks Like a Hedge Fund Pro. I think people listening will say, well, wait a minute, isn't this podcast usually about financial history? Well, there's nothing more history than report and accounts. The financial history I deal in is is really ultimately quite subjective if you're macro. Uh, But there are all these trails, information in the report and accounts, which Steve's book makes a compelling case for, which are not picked up, not properly understood. uh, And the book talks us us through that. So there is a, a thing called the efficient markets hypothesis, Steve, that says all available information is in the price. Your book is full of all available information, which clearly wasn't in the price. Uh, and you've made a career out of finding this and uh, highlighting it. You teach a course in it. So I wanted to uh, to talk about some of those, but also some of the other conclusions which you draw from your own work and also from from academia uh, through the, uh, the the course of the book. So first of all, welcome. Well, listen, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to to be here. It's a long time since we've had a had a chat. And, you know, I never understood the this efficient market hypothesis. hypothesis. It, it just is obviously only partly true. Well, I think you're living proof that it's only partly true and the book may also be good evidence for that. So uh, it's the nature of the book. And uh, I, I read a lot of books and uh, I don't read a lot of books on micro investing. So I've learned more from your book than I've learned from any other book I've ever read. That's probably due to my lack of knowledge on the on the basic rules of micro investing. But even st- so, I would highly recommend it to anybody, who, certainly from coming from my background, who really wants to get up to speed very quickly. And it's just crammed full of stuff. I'm going to take part of that quote and use that. <laughs> I, I could see that in your eyes, even as I was saying it. So let's start. I, I, what I want to highlight here is not the things that people normally highlight, because that's the fascinating thing about your book. When you pick up the annual financial report, uh, there are certain things that I kind of knew to look at, even as the macro guy. Uh, but you really pick up some other things which seem obvious when you read them, but actually people don't look at. So the shareholder register, which is not a thing that people look at, but it's one of the first things you look at. And you flag that up in particular in relation to the listed company, uh, the AA. Do you want to talk us through why you think the shareholder register is so important and why it, why it got you some interesting conclusions on the, on the AA? Well, I think that, you know, there's a lot of smart people around in investing. And I, I don't really think I'm that smart. So, you know, I don't want to be on my own with some crazy idea, um, I'd like to be in good company. So knowing who owns the stock gives you a very good indication as to, you know, is the smart money in there? And, you know, books called the smart money method. And uh, I could have been very short because it's one of the first things I look at. Now, obviously, when you're a professional investor and I worked for two multi-billion dollar hedge funds. So when we were deploying capital, we kind of didn't want to be going into something that smarter people than us had already bought because it, that would tell us that there wasn't enough time. So there, it, this was kind of when I was a professional investor, we were trying to be first. We we're trying to find you know, a different idea. 
But now, and for private investors, why would you want to be the only one in this stock? Obviously, if it's a small cap, that's a different story. But if you're buying a large or mid cap stock, you want to look at the shareholder register and you want to make sure that there's smart money in there. And if there's not smart money in there, you've got to ask yourself, why not? And it's a very it's a very simple thing. I also look at, you know, who's buying and who's selling. So it's not enough just to say, oh, Chris Hone owns this stock. You've got to check that Chris Hone has just bought it recently or has owned it for a long time and hasn't been selling it. And in the case of the AA, the AA was an interesting situation. So I published a short case on the company, the AA for um, listeners who aren't in the UK, is stands for the Automobile Association. It's a breakdown service. And I did a short case um, for the very first Sewn competition in London, the, the, the Sewn London conference held every November, December um, 2017. For the first time, they introduced a, a, an ideas competition, which they'd had in New York some time. And so I entered that. And um, I became I came runner up. I was quite annoyed because in a raging bull market, the winners long went up less than the AA went down and the AA ended up being acquired. So it was quite a funny thing. But one of the one of the reasons, one of the rationales for the AA short was the shareholder register. And I've forgotten who, who was in it. I think it was a, a fund called Parvis, if I remember correctly, which is a fund which is actually backed by Chris Hone. They had a big position, and that was the thing that slightly worried me. Maybe they've, maybe they've discovered something that I've missed. Um, Capital had 15%, if I remember correctly, which is, you know, obviously Capital is a, a multi-trillion fund. They could have a lot more than that if they wanted, but... It's unusual to see capital with more than 15%, or at least in my experience, I don't know if they've got any hard rules. And Woodford had a big position, and Woodford was one of the biggest shareholders. And Woodford was seeing redemptions at the time. You know, the story of Neil Woodford's fund um, tragically um, collapsed, and you know people lost a lot of money. But at this time, it was seeing redemptions. And so, you know, there was going to be people wanting to short AA because they knew that there was going to be a steady outflow of, of stock. So the shareholder register can tell you a huge amount. Okay, let's go on to some of the targets. Uh, through my early career as a, a bottom-up investor, we were always looking at the growth in EPS. You have different opinions on that validity of that, and particularly when it becomes a target for management. So I just wanted to read a bit of your book about EPS growth targets, particularly in relation to WPP. Um, EPS growth targets are extremely popular with US CEOs as well as with some in the UK. Sir Martin Sorrell at WPP used to be the loudest example. For people like Sorrell, it is an excellent way of explaining their financial model and how they will deliver growth. I have mixed views on the practice. Targets based on EPS growth encourage acquisitions and aggressive accounting, and such targets generally bear no reference to the capital employed to achieve the EPS growth, which is a more critical factor. Uh, now, you go on later on to give us some other examples of what you, you would look at. So can you tell us why that's a dangerous thing to, or potentially a dangerous thing to, to be focused on too much and what you'd look at instead? Well, the, the, I mean, the basic problem with uh, an EPS growth target is be, particularly if it's, you know, the major incentive factor for management is it's relatively easy to manufacture. 
And I recall my days um, in the past when um, there was a, the, the BAA, the airport company that owned Heathrow Airport, was privatized. And the finance director was on an incentive for earnings growth. So what did he do? Um, year one, he changed the depreciation rate on the runways from 23 and a half years to 40 years. And that gave him a nice kicker in the EPS. Then the following year, he lengthened the, the period from 40 years to 100 years. And it's a, you laugh, right? But I don't know if people can't see you laughing because it's a podcast, obviously. But, you know, if you look at the largest companies in the world, which you would imagine that companies like Amazon, Google and Microsoft would be quite sophisticated when it came to how long their assets might last. But surprisingly, Microsoft used to be a high quality financially literate company that was using a bare minimum of cheating. But Microsoft changed the life of its servers, not once, but twice in two consecutive years. Just on the, on the BAI point, I assume that this major change in depreciation policy made the front page of the Financial Times, did it? Or did... No, 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 they didn't, they didn't mention it in the press release. So the journalists completely missed that. Okay. The journalists, um, sadly do not get much training in how to read set of accounts. So um, the Financial Times publication, Investors Chronicle, which I um, have written for quite a lot, they, if they get a new person in, they have to do one of my online courses about how to read the financial statements. And I've been trying to persuade the Financial Times to follow this, but without success. And hilariously, they had this article about Terry Smith taking home 30 million pounds a couple of years ago. And they completely missed the fact that there was a, a related parties note which highlighted that Terry had taken home 150 million pounds in his Mauritius company paying 15% tax. And when I explained this to Patrick Jenkins, who's the deputy editor and, the, and responsible for finance companies, he had, put his, had his head in his hands. But, you know... People are not literate about reading balance sheets. Well, that's, that's, about, that's about as good an advertisement for your courses. We're going to get into this podcast, Steve. So, uh, oh, we'll go, we'll, don't worry. I will, I'm sure we'll get better. I'm sure you'll be back. But the the thing is that I mean, this is also true of people, professional investors. So you know, normally um, my main course that I do in person for institutional investors is the forensic accounting course, which you were so helpful in in organizing at the start. But the, I, I've recently been doing courses for people with three to five, two to four years experience. And um, even people that are doing the CFA that have done that past level one, level two of the CFA exams, which is our so-called professional qualification. I was having, the, you know, I was baffled last week or two weeks ago, three weeks ago, when um, I was having this conversation with with these young analysts, and they didn't understand the concept of accrued income, income which was taken as revenue and profit in the profit and loss account that hadn't yet been invoiced. Well, I think, it, I mean, from my experience, that is one of the biggest disasters in accounting, isn't it? I mean, when I look back, that's probably the number one way to flatter your earnings and, and lead to problems. 
Absolutely. So, you know, it's recognizing revenue early. And this has been, you know, fraud after fraud as they've been engaged in this. But these people didn't understand that this could be done. They, oh, they thought, oh, no, that's not possible. <laughs> and sadly, um, many investors and journalists are insufficiently literate about what goes into the, the accounts. And part of the problem, Russell, is that the accountants have been making it much, much more complicated to understand the accounts. Because well, if, uh, if anybody wants to learn more about uh, accountants, we have a nice video on the Library Mistakes webcast on, Bean, on, on our website called Bean Counters by Richard Brooks, which explains some of the uh, problems accountants have in getting too close to their, their clients. Steve, there's, there's lots of stuff in here, uh, which is a bit broader than just all available information. We've just come across another one. Here's another bit of all available information, which uh, I think I've, I've always known, but it's nice to see that there's some academic research to back it up. So I'll read from the book. Founder-led businesses tend to outperform. That's the conclusion of a considerable amount of research, and it is a generally accepted principle. Management consultants Bain and Company have published research on this, which indicates that total shareholder returns at founder-led companies beat others by over two times over a 25-year period from 1990. Credit Suisse have produced similar research, indicating a more than 50% outperformance over a 10-year-plus-year period from 2006. Their work suggests that family-owned companies outperformed in every region, from 3.1% PA in Asia-Pacific, ex-Japan, to 5%... 5.1% PA in Europe, a trend that occurred in every sector. So I, I knew this. I didn't know about that particular research that, that backed it up. Why, if it's so clear, I mean, given that investors are well-trained, looking for every single edge, how come this anomaly? That's I think that's what a, a, a view of the efficient markets hypothesis would call it. How come this anomaly still exists? Too boring, too simple. Think about it. Think about Warren Buffett. That's a founder-led business. Microsoft, founder-led business. Okay, Bill Gates to step back. You know, think about the richest people in the world. Bill Gates, Warren Buffett. You can invest in their company, companies. Um, Monsieur Arnaud, uh, um, LVMH. LVMH has been an incredibly successful company. Monsieur Arnaud is incredibly wealthy and you know he's had a very safe pair of hands the problem i think is that there 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 arise certain issues and when gates handed over to balmer um balmer didn't do a good job and obviously the stock had started at a very very high level in 1999 so it took i think 15 years for it to regain its 1999 level I think if I remember correctly, the stock earnings went up by a factor of 2.7 times and the multiple went down by a factor of 2.7 times. The stock actually did nothing over that period. But generally speaking, um, you know, backing founders is is a good thing. The problem you get is, look, so for example, right now with Monsieur Arnaud is who's going to take over? And should you have a, a child, a son or a daughter taking over 
and therefore preserving this idea that, you know, it's the family's culture? Or should you get in a professional manager? And I was slightly embarrassed. I was doing a course last week and I was asked about capital allocation and I put up on the on the on the screen um, extracts from the book. And one of the things I'd said was no relatives on the board. And I got a bit of an argument about that. Um, and obviously, if you are a very successful founder, then you want to pass on to your to your children. It's uh, something I've experienced in my own career with a long and uh, frank and open discussion with the Keswick family many years ago by Charlie Matheson, which fortunately did not result in legal action, but it came close. Uh, let's, uh, move, let's, let's move on to quality. So what we're looking for is things that are already known, but for some reason the market doesn't seem to want to uh, discount or take into account. You've already mentioned this family ownership, but you've got a whole section on, on quality. And I'll just read from, from the book again. Uh, it was clear to me that a fund manager should hold quality companies in size for the long term. Uh, for the wealth managers, we developed a screening system to pick reliable, high-quality stocks. It was actually amazed at the results. Not only did the high-quality stocks outperform in year one, year two, and year three, but their outperformance continued. Why do you think this is suggesting that the market current clearly undervalues high-quality stocks? Uh, I mean, that's a period in time, but I think it's true over the long term as well. Why Why in this hugely competitive marketplace is this all available information not in the price? Well, first of all, you have to think about where you're measuring from and quality is much better recognized today and has been revalued quite significantly. So an element of the performance has been from the fact that people have understood that quality works and therefore revalued quality companies. But it's quite interesting because I was writing about this in my Substack and on Sunday, and I was <laughs> I was highlighting, you know, my job as a professional investor was basically finding crap to rent, so finding low quality companies that were really out of favour, and you know, buying them in the hope that their earnings would 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 improve. But I think one of the reasons, Russell, is simply that people find it difficult to pay up beyond a certain multiple. And if you go back, there's various um, research being done as to what you could have afforded to pay for high quality businesses at the time that would have made them you know, perform in line with the market. And the multiples are often are stratospheric. I think the, 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 there's a piece of research by Goldman Sachs and it said, um, I think it was produced in 2017, 2018, and you could have afforded to pay a multiple of 1,500 times for 10 cents back in 2007. Well, of course, you know, people find it very difficult to pay 100 times earnings because the problem that if you do pay 100 times earnings, you've got no guarantee that the company will actually deliver. And it's this, this, this inability to gauge, you know, how, people talk about, so I went to a quality growth conference a few months ago and 12 of the 14 speakers talked about a sustainable competitive advantage. Not one of them could define what a sustainable competitive advantage was. And it's this issue about how do you know that that competitive advantage will be sustainable? And I wrote um, on Sunday, um, we're recording this on Monday, it was actually yesterday, um, last, last weekend in October, I wrote about Alphabet 
And I pointed out that it had blowout earnings last week and the stock had gone down and people were confused about this. But if you look at Google's business, I mean, it's been an amazing business. Don't get me wrong. And it still is an amazing business. But where will it be in five years time? It's actually quite hard to to gauge right now. Well, you've got a, in, the, in the book, you've got a really interesting list of uh, what we were calling this the moat, don't we? That's the, the, the term that people use in our business for that sustainable return. And you've got a lovely checklist there of all the things you should look for to see whether a moat is genuinely genuinely sustainable and try and estimate how sustainable it might be. Yeah, I, um, I've been writing quite a bit about, about this because, um, you know, it's a subject I think a lot of people are very interested in. The, the the problem with this is it's very subjective. Right? You can't you can say okay, it's got a high return in capital, or it's got a high gross profitability, or a high gross margin today. But how sustainable that will be going out into the future is a very subjective question. And um, you know, the, a very popular um, area of debate is something like Netflix, and people have got very excited about Netflix and. Um, Obviously, you know, there lots of investors are consumers of the product and like the product and are prepared to pay almost any price for it on the basis that it will be able to grow for decades into the future. And, you know, one of the issues that I have with that is that if you've got young, more modern companies, whether it's an Alphabet or Google or Netflix, they haven't been around for 30, 40 years. So how confident can you be that they will be around in 30 or 40 years' time? Whereas if you buy a Unilever that's been selling soap in India for 100 years and got a 100-year-old brand and it's soap, it's unlikely to be technologically displaced, you've, you've got a, a, you can be more confident about the, the earnings number. It might not be growing as quickly, but you can be more confident that it'll be there and that it'll be producing some sort of return. And, you, you know, these things are very subjective, but, you, you know, you have to make some sort of calculation, some trade-off. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about valuation because you've been in the market a long time. You've seen all sorts of valuation come and go. Uh, I run a course in finance called uh, Advanced Valuation in Financial Markets. Obviously, we're looking at valuations going back a long time, uh, really right back into the 19th century. We tend to favor the Q ratio and the cyclically adjusted PE. These days known as the Schiller PE. The one you pick out that's been most useful in, in your career is uh, enterprise value to sales. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? What, what you think the value is? Uh, and once again, why you think it's useful, but the market on the whole is not, doesn't seem to be that uh, enamored. And maybe it's better at extremes than it is uh, at averages. Well, I think this is a, a, a really important point. And your course, which I've been on, is fantastic. And I really like the idea that you're, of course, if you go physically, you can then also access the online version. So you can look up things that you didn't totally understand or you want to revise or, or, or whatever. But the thing about your course is about the valuation of markets, not the valuation of individual stocks. And what's very interesting is that you see a lot of people talking about valuation of markets and using price to sales. And John Hussman is a, a, a classic uh, proponent of that. And, he, you know, I don't want to say anything against him because I think he's a, you know, a brilliant guy. But people use price to sales. And I think that's a, a, a really bad metric because 
you're looking at an equity value, but you're not taking, you're looking at sales. And to look at sales, you need to take into account enterprise value because you don't have any charge for interest. So you price to sales isn't a good, isn't a useful measure. And the reason that I like EV to sales is if you calculate EV correctly, and very, very few people do, because you've got to take into account the value of minorities, the value of investments, value of associates, the market value of the debt. There's a whole string of tricks that you need to do to get the enterprise value correct. Um, but if you look at EV to sales, first of all, sales is a large number, which is less likely to lie. By the time you get down to earnings, there's all sorts of adjustments being made. And the numbers, you know, uh, often a, a, a function of how aggressive or otherwise the CFO and CEO want to be. With sales, they can still cheat. They can make sales up or accrue sales that they shouldn't. But it's it, it's more accurate, less likely to be um, boosted. And enterprise value to sales is a number, is a ratio, a parameter that doesn't have as big a range as something like a PE. So if you look at a, a, a PE for a stock, particularly for a cyclical stock, it might go from minus 20 to plus 200 for a cyclical company. But an EV to sales number might vary from 0.7 to 1.2. That's, a, you know, often that sort of um, degree of variability. So if nothing else, at least gives you a sense of where you stand relative to history. Now, I'm not a believer in taking historical valuations and saying that's where the share should be, but they do give you a context for evaluation. How has the stock market rated this stock in the past? And if the company hasn't changed, and if the relative environment hasn't changed, then that's as good a proxy for how the valuation will be in the future as anything else you can get. And enterprise value to sales simply gives you a narrow, narrower range of a number that's been less mucked about with. And yes, it's slightly more difficult to calculate, but it's a, a, a much better tool and much more precise tool, in my view, than, than other valuation measures. I don't understand why it seems to be confined to um, SPACs and loss-making tech stocks and loss-making cyclicals. It should be used much, much more widely, in my view. Oh, we are the Library of Mistakes podcast, and I believe in your long career you may have made a mistake or two as well. In fact, I know you have, because you mentioned them in the book, which is not many authors who list their mistakes towards the end, or at least some of the mistakes towards the end. So why don't you talk us through the mistake of just eat and what you learn from that particular mistake so we can all learn from a, from a, similar, a similar mistake? Well... <laughs> The, the funny thing is, I didn't actually put in very many mistakes because otherwise it would have been the whole book. And maybe that's what the second book should be, uh, the, the, the mistakes book. But um, Just Eat, was, I, I was very um, curious about it because they'd done a, an acquisition in Australia and they paid just the most, I've forgotten what the numbers are, but they paid just the most ridiculous valuation for this business. And I thought, oh, man, they are stupid. And the stock was already on an extremely high valuation. And I thought it must be a short. And I didn't really know very much about the Australian company they acquired. So I emailed John Hempson. John is the founder and principal of Bronte Capital. And um, he's one of the most brilliant analysts. And 
one of the best guys at spotting frauds, interestingly enough. So he's got a very, very long short book with lots of tiny positions in, in fraudulent companies. And um, I, I emailed him. I wasn't really sure whether he would respond. But he called me back that night, 10 o'clock Sydney time. And we had this long debate about the valuation of this business. And we realized that Justy had paid for this company what Google Australia would have been worth. No, you know, they could have paid, I think, if I remember correctly, they could have given every man, woman, and child in Australia and New Zealand $40 as, a, as an incentive to try their service. It was just the most, it was just a ludicrous valuation. And um, subsequently, I found out that the, the, the reason why and I was talking to a guy called Graham Clapp. Graham used to manage a fund at Fidelity that was a $26 billion fund. This maybe in the 2000s, 2007 sort of period. And he had a very, very good performance. And then he set up on his own. He set up a hedge fund on his own called Pensato Capital, which he subsequently sold. But he told me that when he was looking at Just Eat, they'd bought a, a business in Nottingham that did food delivery because they could not displace the local market share. So when you're incumbent in a local area, it's extremely difficult to displace you. And so they were forced to buy out the incumbent. And that was why they paid this ridiculous sum for this Australian business. Of course, it was still a mistake because they didn't need to be in Australia. You know, that business could never be worth what they paid for it. Even if they managed to grow it and make it more profitable, it would never be capitalized at what, what they paid. So it was an absolutely ridiculous, stupid deal. And, you know, the number of stupid deals I've seen, um, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't even begin to list them. Well, deals beat working for a living, isn't that right? If you're a CEO, it's a, just an easier thing to do than actually get into the nitty gritty of improving the underlying business. So that's uh, a key driver for these deals. Well, I think that, that, you know, it gives you the opportunity to persuade the market you're going on a, a faster growth tra trajectory. But I'm sure you've seen some academic work uh, on this. I mean, I haven't really seen a very good um, analysis, but in my experience, most deals are bad deals. So when you see a company doing a deal, you should assume that it's not going to be a good deal. It might well be well received by the stock market at the time because management have got massively good training from the investment bankers on how to sell the deal. And of course, investment bankers are fantastic at selling deals because that's what they do for a living and get well paid for it. It's not just investment bankers. I know a man who wrote a book called The Art of the Deal, which seemed to, well, maybe he didn't write it. Somebody else wrote it. But anyway, this book seems to have sold quite well. Uh, his whole life seems to be a deal of one sort or another. So no, uh, taking it beyond the corporate I, when he got elected that weekend, I pulled that book off the shelf and started reading it. And I, I just I had my head in my hands. Uh, do you want to say something now that you're here? Because I, every time I meet you, Steve, you always tell me something else that you've discovered. And it's usually interesting. I mean, many years ago, long before it was in trouble, it was about patisserie Valerie and why you thought there was something really peculiar going on. So you might want to talk about that metric. 
but also uh, you also had a, a little look at Mr. Trump's uh, golf courses as well from the available information on those. So why don't you, was, why don't you leave us with a, a little tale of, uh, of, of these two? I was very disappointed about the Trump golf courses because it didn't get any interest in the press. I did this analysis which showed that had Trump, instead of buying the golf courses, invested the money in the stock market, he would have made, well, today he would have made over a billion dollars more money than he did from investing in the golf course. He's meant to be this business genius and he's done a dismal job in, in the, his investments in, in the UK. And the reason I think this is interesting is that there's no documentation of Trump's financial track record anywhere. This is the only thing that you can look at and say, well, here we can see what he's invested and what the businesses are worth. And as far as I can see, he's lost money. He's got he's because he's invested in the UK and he's lent sterling into the the businesses he's he's invested in. And the, the sterling has gone from two to one twenty five. And He's owed all these all these pounds, which aren't worth nearly the dollars that he started out with. But well, um, he's not the first person to get an exchange rate wrong. Talk us through, Patisserie Valerie. What is it that you saw that actually the board of directors didn't see? This one's subjudice, as you know. There are criminal charges currently pending on this one. But before this all went wrong, you said to me, based on this metric. This doesn't smell right. What what is the metric, and what, why should we pay well, attention to it? I mean, there there were all sorts of metrics, but the most obvious one was the margin, because at one point in 2011, Patisserie Valerie was reporting a margin which was higher than that of Starbucks, and in 2017, its margins was within a point or two of, of Starbucks, well north of what Costa Coffee were producing. If you've got a restaurant in the UK, Russell, you, your two principal costs are labor, which is 35 to 40% of cost, and rent, which is probably 11, 12, 13% cost. So between of, of sales, excuse me, so call it 35% of sales, 37% of sales, and 12% of sales. So 50% of sales are labor and property. Starbucks, I don't know what percentage of Starbucks's coffee sales are to take away, but I mean, 50%, 75%, 80%, 80%, I don't know what the numbers are, but it'd be that order of magnitude. And so for those sales, it doesn't require nearly the amount of labor, doesn't require somebody to come and, you know, deliver the coffee to your table and then come and deliver the bill and then come and collect the money. Um, and it doesn't require a table. So, you know, just that very simple metric would have led you to question, well, why is it, report, why is it reporting such high profitability? Because well, I think it, the, uh, the, seal, the sales per square foot of space was incredibly high as well. Isn't that correct? Um, well, it, it made, um, so it, it, was, it was valued like a growth company and they pitched it as a growth company. But its sales per restaurant had actually gone down between 2013 and 2018 when it finally folded. So its sales per unit was 
I think if I remember correctly, started off at 600,000 and ended up at 580,000. Whereas its nearest peer, its nearest quoted peer was um, Fulham Shore, the owner of Franco Manca, which was reporting sales of over a, th- over a million pounds or close to a million pounds. And other peers were doing two million pounds. So Wagamama was doing two million pounds per, per restaurant. And obviously, if you've got higher sales per restaurant, you're more likely to be, you have a higher profitability, I would say. But the, the fact that its sales hadn't grown over that period was a massive um, warning signal because obviously that 2011 to 2017 period included Brexit and the currency had collapsed. So, you know, we import 80% of our food. And if you're selling coffee or tea, they're certainly imported products, so they cost more. I mean, it's just, you know, very hard to see how your margins improve if your sales are standing still and your costs are going up. So that sounds like common sense, but the book is not just common sense. There are a lot of tips in here about what you should be looking for. Uh, as I said, I find it invaluable. You call it the smart money method, how to pick stocks like a hedge fund pro. I'd call it the smart money method, why all available information isn't in the price. So in terms of financial information and financial history, as we've discussed, a lot of it is pretty subjective. I think the great thing about your book is it tells you where to look to get slightly more objective, available information, which we have discussed is not actually in in the price. So, Steve, thanks. Of course, I now have to come and take your course and uh, just show up my ignorance in all of these things. So uh, when I've uh, got a bit more time, uh, that is one of the top things uh, on my list is to go and, uh, and learn about reporting accounts. So I'll see you there. Well, I shall really not look forward to having you as a student, but you ask all these difficult questions. But the listeners should um, be aware that, you know, investing in your own education. I mean, Warren Buffett says the best investment you can make is to invest in yourself. And, you know, Russell, your course is amazing and it's brilliant in person and it's great online. And, you know, my Analyst Academy online course, I mean, people that have taken it have really, really enjoyed it. And, you know, if you want to learn about investing, reading my book or other, there's lots of other books that are much, much better, are really helpful. But actually going and doing a course where you've got to do exercises and you've got to test yourself, that really will improve your skills. And I wish more people would do it. Well, I'm told that Henry Kissinger reads a book a day and, uh, you know, he's no spring chicken, but he's still got that voracious appetite to learn. Charlie Munger, I think is probably a wee bit younger than Henry Kissinger. He's also a voracious reader. Uh, Both of them seem to be relatively successful in this approach to life. So, uh, yeah, education, education, education. I regret saying that now. Steve, great book. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. The Library of Mistakes is based in Edinburgh. To explore it in person, simply visit libraryofmistakes.com, register as a reader and book your visit. It's all free. And to enjoy little nuggets from our extensive collection of books, watch videos of our talks and keep up to date with what we're up to, do follow us on X. LinkedIn and Instagram. Furthermore, if you'd like to learn more about the world of investment, the Library of Mistakes runs an outstanding course called The Practical History of Financial Markets. To find out more, please see the link in the show notes. And finally, 
If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Library of Mistakes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the podcast platform of your choice.